0: Welcome back, everyone. We are live. This is Growing With My Fellow Growers on YouTube. I'm at Jack Greenstock, the host filling in for Shane of the Cheap Home Grow podcast. I'm joined tonight by a awesome uh, panel of growers and we've also got an IPM specialist this evening, but I'm going to first start off with a breeder. uh, Kyle, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey,
1: Jack.
2: Hey, everybody, Uh, I'm glad everybody's here. And uh, yeah, um, my name is Kyle Breeder. If anybody's looking for some high-quality feminized seeds, please free, uh, feel free to check out the website pbreeding.com. If anyone's looking for any kind of content that I'm working on or if you have any questions about breeding or growing, please feel free to reach out on uh, any social media platform at Predicated Breeding. And uh, yeah, I'm just happy that we're still doing this. Uh, you know, we've been doing this for a while. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be, or I'm not happy, but I'm excited to see uh, what we talk about tonight. And uh, thanks for hosting, Jack.
0: Always happy to fill in as the host. I enjoy the conversation and um, always enjoy the live chat, which I'll remind everybody who is here already. uh, If you click the top chat button on YouTube, you can go over to the live chat so you can see all the messages if you don't want certain ones filtered out by the YouTube algorithm. Uh, Next up, I'm going to pass it over to our IPM specialist, Matthew Gates.
3: Yeah, hey everyone, this is Matthew Gates. I uh, am an integrated pest management specialist, that is true. And if you want to find content about pests and diseases and uh, mitigating them, you can check out my Instagram at SyncAngel or my YouTube channel, Xenthanol. And I have two videos that are in production right now. The August 2020 uh, IPM FAQ video. I'm working on that right now. So all the comments and questions and things that people sent me, I am putting into the video right now. I was actually just editing it And then I also have a video coming out about insect digestion and some of the myths and realities therein. So if you're interested in that, please take a look.
0: I highly suggest uh, doing that because I would say that you have some of the best content in your uh, specificity in the game Uh, in cannabis growing or any cultivation. I think that the content you freely provide is uh, some of the best top stuff that i've seen available to the community so very thankful to have you on the show and speaking of great content we've got another awesome content creator a youtuber as well dr mj
4: hey guys yeah dr mj coco from coco for cannabis i put out a little bit of youtube content this week my latest par test video with the photon tech x 600 watt pro which is a really beautiful fixture um and we have a cool we just announced we have a photon tech prize we're going to give away one of the 465 watt photon tech lights in the plant training grow challenge in October, um, this is like you know we're running out of good time to sign up for the Plant Train and Grow Challenge, everybody. So get in on this and uh, let's grow together, Dr. MJ Coco. Excited
0: well, to be here, guys. thank you for joining us, Doc. We have a, a new listener this evening, Spider Man, who was invited by Smot Poker, who says hello to everyone on the podcast. I was invited here as a new member of the Coco for Cannabis site. So thank you, Doc, and thank you to Spider Man in the chat, spelled like Spider uh, Farmer or. Spider, like the Fluent Spider, uh, Light, yeah. S-P-Y-D-R, but uh, shout out to them. And next up, we have uh, Noah the Groa. How you doing over there?
1: I'm doing great. How's it going, everybody? Uh, yeah, I'm Noah the, the Grower from Instagram, with two E's. Uh, I've been doing this for a while, and if anybody uh, is curious what I'm doing, you're more than welcome to stop up on my page, and uh, happy to be here with you. How are you doing, Jack?
0: I'm doing well. I'm uh, very thankful. I was telling some of the other guys my dad was able to visit me uh, this week. Uh, safely we had a meal together and always enjoy that don't get to see him too often so that was a good time but always happy to see you as well Noah thank you again for joining us this week Uh, Noah grows some fire if you haven't already followed him on Instagram make sure to go check it out I've seen some of his recent posts and they're looking uh, as frosty and colorful and beautiful as ever so great work over there Noah next up we have uh, the American one
5: Hey Jack and panel and everyone in chat, it's good to be here. Um, I'm the American one on YouTube and the American one with Akeem's on IG. You can find me pretty easy. I hope everyone's good. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to tonight.
0: Thank you for joining us. And uh, tonight, like many nights, I actually have not come up with a specific topic. So if anybody does have one in mind that they'd like to throw out, whether you're on the panel or within the chat, we'd be more than happy to sort of have a free flowing discussion Mostly, uh, cheap home grow and cannabis-related. But if you have something that's on your mind, just in general, whether it's a community or or whatever, we'd be happy to talk about it. And uh, that goes for the panel members as well. So I'll just open it up to anybody who might have some uh, ideas for this evening.
5: I kind of have a question. Um, have you guys seen the posts about the DEA going into CBD extracting facilities and busting them for the leftover THC parts? Is that A true story?
0: I haven't heard of it, but I wouldn't uh, put it past the DEA. Unfortunately, they've uh, got a long history of over-enforcement and uh, being highly critical of the regulations. And if they can get you on any little thing, they're more than happy to do so. So anybody out there who's in those extraction facilities, I'd say, be careful. Noah, uh, did you have something to
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard I heard all about this. Well, I mean, not all about, but I heard about good, this. Good. And I heard it has something to do with the, the concentration uh, being over the legal amount of 0.3% THC. So they are nitpicking, but I mean, it is a technical issue. So, but yeah, that's what I heard.
0: There was some misunderstanding with the Farm Bill because a lot of people misinterpreted that if THC was de- derived from hemp, if it was 0.3% THC initially, as long as it was on the plant at that level, if they extracted it out, they thought then, okay, well, it came from a hemp plant. Now I can concentrate it into whatever level I thought. So some facilities may have been getting in trouble for that because I do know that I heard people claiming, oh, well, this came from hemp, so I can sell it in all 50 states, which is not the case. Um, If you read the bill closely, 0.3% THC is the limit for hemp-related products. And that's whether it's on the plant or whether it's a and many things actually like the FDA doesn't even allow consumable hemp products yet to my knowledge. So if it's like an edible hemp, it's actually not meant to be used. I think only topicals and um, tinctures and other things like that have been, and the tinctures are meant to be used topically even though people mostly use them orally.
5: Yeah. Well, what I was kind of understanding from the article I read is these like, you know how you get CBD distillate, so that's just straight up CBD. So when they separate it, they do the separation. They have CBD, and then they have a portion of THC that is concentrated, and that's what that I understood that they were trying to bust them for. But I, I'm not totally you know privy to the inside stories.
0: That's it, yeah, sort of what I was kind of alluding to. Um, many of them, I think that CBD because it's been uh, descheduled because of Epidiolex being legalized, they had to kind of act quickly. Um, and make CBD legal in all 50 states to have that BFD FDA-approved medication. But with that, the THC is still regulated. But the other thing is there's like analogs that are not regulated yet, like Delta-8 THC versus Delta-9 or Delta-10. And there is THC-V, which I do not believe is a federally a Schedule I drug. But what they get you on is it comes from cannabis, which is considered part of the Schedule 1, And um, in in that, they can come down with regulation and enforcement. And so, like I said, just be very careful. Make sure if you're doing something like that at scale, I would recommend having good attorneys and uh, being very familiar with your state and the federal law. And then at least being able to highlight the parts and say, like, this is our argument for why we claim that we're able to do what we're doing. Uh, Because at least that way in in court, you have a jury that you can argue in front of. And if you really truly believe it to be one way, some of these laws are written extremely complex. And um, maybe there's misinterpretation, or maybe it's just, you know, there's not one clear way that it was written so it's open to that gray area and that was like if you look at prop 215 there was a lot of gray area within it but a lot of other laws since then have been very specific so i just say um, normal is a great website national organization of reforming marijuana laws Uh, they have a state by state breakdown of the current laws and punishments for different things so i highly suggest that to anybody who's curious about these types of regulation On the other hemp side of thing, I was just um, speaking with somebody on the panel, I can't remember who actually, but I was talking about maybe um, if they they aren't on the panel, but shout out to Medically Fit, they sent me a link to uh, Cornell University, they had a hemp day where they had like a bunch of different uh, research field trials where they had PhD students and horticulturalists and uh, people like that come on and share their results and ongoing studies that they're doing with hemp, which I found to be pretty interesting. And I was curious if anybody on the panel, um, seeing as most of the THC and uh, high cannabinoid cannabis is extremely hard to get a license for. Like in California, I know it's multiple millions of dollars to be able to afford a facility, get the city permit, get the state permit and go through all of that. So if somebody wanted to do it independently, I've uh, been hearing people have been getting into hemp because the permits are a lot more affordable. And uh, the CDFA here in California actually works with you a lot more uh, with hemp than they do the BCC with cannabis. So I was curious, does anybody um, have experience growing hemp or any interest in getting into hemp in the future? Uh, Doc, I know you have a sort of field agriculture experience and background a bit. Do yeah. You have any interest yeah. in that?
3: It just strikes me as a totally
4: different thing. I mean, I would approach that like the decision to to get into farming like soybeans or corn or sort of any other crop like that. Um, I think that the cultivating cannabis, especially on sort of the craft scale is a really different kind of activity than field agriculture. Um, and certainly I, I approach the two of them really differently in, in kind of practices, how I think about it and all of that. Um, and I really like the, the craft aspect of sort of the, the small scale grow where you can put a lot of time and attention into each plant and um, really focus on developing like the high quality um, final product, which is just just a different style if you're thinking about field agriculture for hemp. Um, I agree that there's an interesting market that's opening up there, but I think the people that will be able to sort of take advantage of that are the people that are already positioned as sort of field farmers. Um, Yeah, It's
0: interesting. Um, The one person I know who's doing like what I would consider to be quality cannabis on field grown would be uh, Breeder Steve down in Columbia. He's doing like giant aquaponic uh, tanks that feed field grown cannabis. And he's just bred the cultivars to be successful, even without a greenhouse or any sort of uh, acclimation. But their climate is very specific down there. They get that sort of 12-12 all year round. It's very equatorial, insane sun. He said everything finishes two weeks uh, quicker down there for him so he's actually able to get stuff outdoor that's comparable to what his best stuff was indoor in Canada yeah and, uh, so it's very interesting where it's being grown but on the hemp side of things I'm interested in the terpene research if you look into like Oregon CBD they have a C- high CBG cultivars now they're coming out people are looking into CBN which is a really sedative um, cannabinoid which is also not regulated um, the same way that THC is so I'm just really interested in all the opportunities that are, that are available. The one thing I will say is it seems to me like most hemp um, historically was fiber hemp yes. and it wasn't super rich in cannabinoids or terpene. So when we're going into these breeding projects, we're taking the best stuff from the fo- usually photo period um, cannabis, that's high terpene and high cannabinoid. And we're breeding that into the hemp and then making these new hemp cultivars that are technically hemp. They're like below 0.3, but they look nothing like the hemp of old. They're not growing these long uh, stocky, plants they're not planted the same way they actually look almost yeah
4: and and that's really why i think when we talked about this before when we got into thinking about what hemp is i mean i think there's a difference between that field grown hemp for fiber and these high cbd strains that essentially look just like you know the the high thc cannabis plants um but are just lower in thc and higher in cbd um, I think I'm comfortable with calling those like, you know, medical plants or something, but they're different than hemp. And I think that it's only because of the legal regime and in, in sort of separating the, the cannabis plants that have more or less than a certain degree or a certain percentage of THC. Um, but when you look at them in terms of what they're used for, in terms of sort of how they are morphologically and, and all of these things, there's really large differences And so, I think amongst those plants that are all being called hemp, we have at least three really big divisions. You have the fiber plants, you have the seed plants, and then you have the flower plants, which are like the high CBD flower plants that are low in THC. Um, And I I think they're all interesting crops. Um, You would grow them all really for different markets for different purposes, and they would have different. Sort of uh, criteria to think about in terms of how to grow them and all of the rest of that, but um, yeah, it's all an interesting area of agriculture. It, it definitely strikes me as something that's different than sort of what I do in my home grow. Yeah,
0: yeah, the uh, Cornell thing that I was talking about, the Hemp Day. One of the things they're talking about is how many seeds they plant per square foot, and I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely different than like cannabis growing for like what we're growing uh yeah. the high terpene high cannabinoid cannabis because they're planting like 25 seeds in a square foot and just letting them all germinate up and that was for like i think they were calling it grain grain crops of hemp where they were letting it go to seed yeah and then there was the fiber crops where they're growing it just for the stalks right. and there's slight differences but still much much higher plant density
4: well you just choose different strains for those two purposes right the strain that is going to produce the best seeds isn't necessarily the strain that's going to produce the best um fiber but yeah you would grow them under the conditions that would maximize the production of that aspect of the plant that you wanted be it seeds be it stalks be it flower um so yeah Uh, And and I think it just, it it tends to get, I think we're sort of more interested, it's interesting because I'm interested in agriculture and I'm interested sort of in broad trends in global agriculture. And when we have these conversations, it it always sort of strikes me like it's appealing to that sort of set of interests, not necessarily the set of interests that are, are sort of more in line with with cannabis cultivation, and I, I, yeah, it's it's just an interesting, thought, but I do think it is all related.
3: Yeah. I you know- also
4: wanted to just say some somebody asked I think it was Max or somebody asked about what you're looking at in my picture today. Um, that's my my webcam is always in my tent, um, and for some reason it decided that my humidity dome sitting on a bucket in my tent is like my face. So it's exposing that part of the the tent to you, but you're looking at uh, down into a four by two tent and that's at the other end. I have the humidity dome with just two little seedlings sitting on top of that bucket. And that's my plant training grow challenge grow. Just Um, like you,
3: I definitely, um, uh, you know, geek out over the very different, like the various different cultivars and like markets and like specificities like i'm sure that even with the grain and the fiber we'll have like well this one's good for this area and this one's good for this particular kind of process perhaps or maybe yeah. we'll, we'll you know just like with the poinsettias going from a single stock to like a multi-stock um you know allowed uh you know poinsettias to be um cut and propagated like a magnitude faster so those kinds of cool things i'm curious to see how that comes about
0: from an ipm perspective um i just found it interesting the same guy who sent me the cornell video medically fit he's been on the show in the past uh shout out to him he was um talking about how he collected some feral hemp and i know we've talked a little bit about this in the past because it might have potential risks of introducing like pathogens and things like that but one thing he was excited about um, was that he believed they would have extremely high tolerance to drought and certain pests from at least that region. And for breeding, he felt that it might be valuable for that reason. And that was something that I would be interested in if I was going into sort of a breeding program for hemp, I'd want to look at maybe some stuff that I'm not seeing in cannabis. A lot of the cannabis is bred so high to the one way, like the type one, Uh, it's a bunch of THC with some terpenes, or I think there might be some resistances in these other like type two, type three, and type four varieties uh, that have either CBD dominant, a mix of one and two, Um, or just non, it's, there's certain ones that aren't any of those three that they've been finding like the CBG stuff.
4: So now you're talking about the wonderful world of what we call crop genetic resources, Um, sort of thinking about where different genes and what different populations of the the plants may have certain desirable genes. Um, I agree, there's probably some genes in some of these hemp varieties that may be useful to think about, you know, bringing into um, other varieties of cannabis, Um, but I would suspect that most of the really important crop genetic resources, sort of the most valuable ones, are still in sort of land race and and wild varieties of the plant, Um, but there are still probably some in in hemp and other things that you could breed differently that
3: way, too. One thing that's really good stuff is to come through those breeding efforts and really concentrating those things and you know but I agree with you I think that a lot of those resources are are yet to be discovered sort of the primitive ones that we can kind of develop better or at the very least um utilize more efficiently yeah
4: Yeah, or maybe we have to work even through breeding to get expression developed to some of these things um a bit the, the the resources themselves. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's a lot left to learn in these things um, about like every crop plant too, not just about cannabis. Um, you know, there's a big scramble going on with sort of understanding different plants um, and understanding their resistances, the, the genes that we have available to sort of work with and breed into and, and to to help survive plagues and other things like that.
0: Wine is still learning. I mean, and they've been around for a very, very long time with a pretty open and and legally regulated business for many countries. So if they're still learning, we've got a long ways to go. One thing I was excited to hear about is, um, there are some lobbies, believe it or not, on the side of cannabis. And, um, one of them that's actually larger is the hemp lobby within the United States, who's pushing for a 1% THC cap versus a 0.3, which would allow for a little bit more wiggle room with the breeding. And I know that, um, Like I was saying earlier, how the hemp licenses are a little bit more uh, forgiving and open. If you have a crop that fails because it's too high, for example, you can keep that seed and keep on breeding that line and you don't have to go and destroy all the seed. So like say you were trying to make a high CBD variety with low THC or whatever, and it just didn't work out for whatever whatever reason, you could push it to F2 and try and find one with lower THC that would be within the legal range. So they want to work with you. And a reason that's important is there's two varieties of uh, Chinese hemp. I can't think of the names right now. Unfortunately, I just tried to look them up really quickly, but I can't um, find the actual names of the cultivars, but they have like one to 2% THC, but they're like double the yields of any of the other cultivars that were examined in hemp. So they're like ultra super high yielding, um, great for whatever they are producing, whether it's fiber or the grain. And if we had access to that within our gene pool, that'd be extremely valuable, but because it's just a little too high, um, many people can't work with it directly. So you'd have to use it in a breeding program to make it available. The American one. And when,
3: and when people say like resistance, it's like how resistant and what confers that resistance and you know like if does this does do the things that cause the resistance to happen have other effects that we need to control for, you know, or does the resistance against one thing cause susceptibility to another thing? That definitely happens. I think a lot of people don't appreciate that.
0: We've seen that directly with THC. When they started breeding THC out of some plants, they um, were more just susceptible to certain pests. There's
3: a gene cassette in the, if I if I if I don't uh, if I say this correctly, um, essentially it's it's a part of the THC production. And so when they t- like you're saying when they took it out, I think the the R genes were for powdery mildew resistance and possibly other fungi. And, you know, um, medicinal genomics is doing work with regards to that. They're also doing assays for like cannabis viruses. They're the only people I know who are really comprehensively doing that. That could be a marketing thing. But to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I try to keep my ear to the ground. And I'm pretty excited about that kind of research for sure. And I think that Right then and there, that's sort of like almost insulting. Be like, hey, you can't grow cannabis that does THC. Um, you have to grow an inferior plant because we said so, even though we're making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars off of the backs of even uh, commercial grows. I just feel like it's kind of, yeah, just not really necessary.
0: <laughs> it certainly seems unnecessary, but um, to switch it up from hemp and maybe a little bit over to the autoflowers, uh, Noah, the oh. grower, you've been... Oh, sorry, Tyler, if you have something to say. I just wanted to say something about the hemp.
5: You know, they grow for fiber, and I've seen where you need seeds to grow for fiber, but when they do a field to grow the fiber, they put them real tight to each other, and it grows like one stick. But they take those same plants, and they grow them for seed, because they have to make seeds, and it looks more like, um, you know, one of those 1970s outdoor sensimile plants. It has all the side branching and everything. looks Way more like a regular pot plant than when they do it for hemp in particular. And um, I also was going to say that, you know, Canada, even Canada had a hemp, um, had hemp going well before they legalized the uh, recreational use. They had a hemp uh, industry and, and other countries had hemp industries for a long time.
0: There, one issue I would say with that is that their certified seeds are actually only good if you're in Canada or in certain uh, areas of the world because the further south you go, closer to the equator. The higher amounts of THC, many of those varieties start to produce. Uh, that was an yeah. issue with Oregon um, selling seeds to like people in Colorado, for example. They might be fine in Oregon, but in Colorado they might test hot, or in Florida or some of these other uh, states they get a little bit more intense sunlight and UV and things like that. So it's certainly interesting. But I wanted to um, switch it up a little bit because I know Noah the Grower has been quite quiet over there, and I want to give everybody a chance to jump in a little bit. And I was uh, remembering that he has recently been thinking about or uh, has already gotten into the autoflower side of things, and I know you're kicking it off with some Mandalorian genetics. Have you actually got to uh, pop those yet, or is this something that you're still planning on doing?
1: No, yeah. Uh, so he, a full duplex gave me some, uh, shout-out to full duplex, gave me some, uh, some testers, and I started them all, like, outside uh, in probably, like, June. I haven't marked on the plot, but I think it's like, June 19th. And they're probably about two and a half feet big, starting to get some pretty big buds. I got uh, some anvil and some alf, and uh, you know it was it it was my first time doing it, and it's it's exciting. And uh, I've already been in talks with them. I've already gotten some more, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try some more next year. I'm excited to do it, and I think uh, growing auto flowers outside is it's a lot of fun, and I'm excited to do it. And yeah, earlier on the conversation there about the hemp, I don't have any experience, so I was just kind of pay attention to you guys and listen to all that, you know, interesting stuff. You know, I'm always trying to learn new stuff. So,
0: It's certainly interesting to me because I also don't have a ton of firsthand experience. I follow a lot of people who do it and I'm interested in the research behind it. But I figure if I ever, um, for whatever reason, am not able to get into the cannabis industry on the THC side of things, which is where I actually prefer, like Doc was kind of referring to, it's sort of like more horticulture, small scale craft um, and THC and high terpene cannabis, things like that but if that's not an option a lot of people underestimate how similar the cannabis plant is to the hemp plant, especially when you're looking at hemp as just being 0.3% below uh, THC, because those CBD plants that we were talking about earlier, like Humboldt seeds has a variety called the Kush hemp E1, and it looks like Bubba Kush. It comes out like black leaves, frosty buds, super terpy, and it's grown for smokable flower. And, um, You could probably sell it to somebody and have them think that it's high THC cannabis just by looking at it and smelling it. Unfortunately, that'd be like a one sale and, you know, done for good because most people that are looking for high THC are looking for a buzz and CBD is not going to give you that same effect. Although the terpenes might give you a little bit of a entourage effect and a nice buzz. That's not what uh, many of the people like here that home grow their own medicine are looking for. So. It's certainly interesting to see how far it's come because it's interesting to
4: see the placebo on that though. Wouldn't it like give somebody (laughs) this frosty, beautiful nug and just see if it gets some high by placebo
0: or even just terps. Like um, back in the day, the hemp was actually like fiber hemp. So if some some kids snuck into a field and they saw the leaves and they're like, Oh, this is cannabis. They'd like chop some off, poorly dry it, uh, smoke the leaves, maybe get some buds. They'd smoke so much, never get high and end up getting a headache. But now this stuff like, uh, they're selling it. And I think some people unfortunately spray it with like THC distillate or sprinkle some Keef on there to give it like a little yeah. bit of a buzz. Um, but the bud alone, I haven't tried it myself yet personally, but I've heard people say it like is calming and pain relieving. So I do think that there may be some uh, reasons for it. It was popular out here in California for a little while, like CBD flower was a big thing. And um, it just doesn't personally help my medical ailments too much. But I know a lot of people, the delivery service I was working at, Um, enjoyed it for one reason or another so it's it's one of the many there's hundreds of cannabinoids and hundreds of terpenes so i think we're sort of just scratching the surface like i was alluding to earlier with um, like wine they're still learning a bunch and they've got a ton of information and we're kind of uh, much more novice than them in our research and um, industries but uh kyle speaking of breeding i know uh we're talking about hemp and autoflowers do you have anything going on the autoflower side of things? I know you're getting back going. You've got some new plants and new crosses coming. Uh, is anything going to be on the autoflower side of things?
2: Oh, that's a good question, Jack. Uh, as of right now, the, uh, the seed stock I have is, uh, you know, because obviously during that move, once I moved uh, last year it um, in January, so I uh, it changed a lot of things. So I had to. As you know, it's, like, pretty time-consuming to basically – with breeding, it's all about setting up. Everything's uh, timed and specific with, uh, you know, how everything works out. And uh, So I'm depleting on seed stock. So my goal right now is obviously to get my photos up. Uh, Again, you know, I I, kind of mentioned it last week, but, uh, you know, so I have some new phenos. And basically what my goal is to kind of, like, hurry up and find my new phenos basically create a you know a big batch of new seed stock for the website and then kind of dabble into auto flowers because it's a it's a big uh, it's a big market that i'm missing out on and it's not so much the market end but but the people that love it you know and uh so i, I reached out to full duplex i asked if i could breathe with some of his stuff um you know the nine pound hammer and anvil and stuff like that uh i'll probably cross it into some of the pineapple express that i have and i have some auto flowers that i kind of used to play with too but uh uh, at the moment no but uh i'm, I'm kind of mad well, wasn't that a
0: pineapple express auto you selfed it and then it became a non-auto so you've got a really st- like stinky pineapple uh photo but it may have some auto flower within there so maybe it'll be easy to breed to with other autos potentially
2: yeah yeah i found that really interesting yeah so i selfed it and uh it it, it didn't flower by itself so I, I was kind of weirded out by that but um yeah i mean that strain is uh that's my favorite strain so anybody's uh you know i don't know too much about Bar- uh, barney's farm and uh, maybe some of the other gear that they have but pineapple express for an auto flower is like to me heaven on earth man just the the yield the the terps, uh the structure every single one i ever popped was vigorous uh, i'm just in love with that plant. so yeah i mean uh, anybody's looking for, for some decent autos, i would definitely head that route but uh yeah i plan on reopening that pack or not pack but uh you know some of that stock that i have and uh, you know hoping to do some of that maybe with some of the full duplexes gear um so we'll see
0: I um will say the thing about Barney's Farm is they do have some really fire genetics. There's some stuff that people morally might not agree with, like Breeder Steve, who's been on Future Cannabis Project a lot lately. He bred the Shish and Sweet Tooth, which are both strains that were released by Barney's Farm, uh, basically stealing the name and genetics and just rebranding it and selling it, which a lot of people are not the hugest fans of. But uh, I will say you found some really awesome stuff with that uh, pineapple, uh, got him. Them- blanket on the name, but the pineapple auto. And uh, I know somebody who's gotten an 11% terpene tangerine dream, which is pretty crazy. Cause like, I want to say like 8% of it was piney. So even though I don't love Barney's farm, I do think uh, at some point in my lifetime, I'll probably buy a few packs and hunt through some tangerine dream to look for some interesting uh, citrus pine, if you knows, because that level of terpenes is very not common <laughs> to be found in flower. Like Brandon, uh, who's not here this week with us but uh, he grows some flowers with levels like that. But I've seen maybe less than five growers that are above uh, 7% terpenes. So it's pretty rare to find a genetic like that. And whether it comes from Barney's Farm or a guy like Breeder Steve, I think at the end of the day, if you can get some really awesome genetics in your hands, that's maybe worth whatever the pack cost is and just sucking it up and saying, okay, they might've done some shady stuff in the past, but if you want your hands on the best, sometimes you got to deal with uh, people that have done things like that, so
2: yeah autoflower is breeding because you know when it comes to photo period you know you're you're in complete control um with autos man it's uh you know you, you, everything's timed within a couple of weeks so like you don't you don't know when it's flowering so you got to kind of like basically gauge it and then prep for it and uh you know it's doable and everyone's doing it or a lot of people are doing it. and doing some of them are doing it well but uh it's it's like a whole other animal for sure
0: like you said it's it's kind of a not like a bummer it's a market to fill because people really want it but it's a bummer for like someone like you or myself who we're not necessarily auto flower specialists and that's not our passion necessarily but people like what we put out there in general just in cannabis whether it's our photo periods or our philosophy is like yours on, on stress training and things like that so people want gear from you but some people only grow autos or some people only grow phantoms. so it's like i'm a breeder who's like the american one who uh, has only made regular seeds before and some people are like oh man i'd love to try some of your stuff, but I only pop fems. So, and I'm not playing. Well, even to in the time right.
4: we've been doing this show, it's been impressive to me to see how fast autos are coming on. I mean, it definitely seems that that's the direction that the, the market that most growers are sort of migrating. Um, there's still a lot of reluctance among some older growers who are used to photos. Uh, but yeah, from my perspective, autos are, are certainly sort of the future of uh, craft cannabis.
2: Do we know what the highest uh, tested auto flower, flower is, um, bud?
0: Depends or on THC? what you're talking about. THC, I've seen 25 to like 27%. Um, Mephisto's uh, Forgotten Cookies has gotten up there. Uh, I can't remember who the other person was, but I did see another. I think it was Morningstar Seed Company. And maybe even um, shout out to full duplex. I think I saw one of his hit 26%. I'm pretty sure. You
5: guys trust all those numbers?
0: I think most of them are BS, but Brandon mentioned like there's ISO seven going back to the hemp Cornell research thing. Most States use ISO seven lab standards. So if you're going to a lab that's certified through ISO seven, that's like international standards, metrics, whatever, or operations, uh, number seven is just like the list that they use and that will have like Mercene, pinene, and all the other reference points. So when something flashes through the chromatograph, they'll be able to tell you what it is. Uh, for most people, it's just THC, CBD, THCA, CBDA, things like that. But even the process with that, uh, was something I wanted to bring up, your terpenes might test lower because they don't have a great grasp on how to operate their equipment. Um, an example of that is, uh, GCMS, uh, gas chromatography, liquid, or um, mass spectrometry
3: gas spectrometry.
0: gas spectrometry mass chromatography i think yeah but yeah that device for example it heats up the product so if you don't have it running before you start to take the sample and like ready to take it in you'll lose some of the terpenes the most volatile terpenes and esters will already have flared off through the machine and not be read. so certain people will have lower terpene tests if the user error is basically committed of not having it ready to be or if the
5: sample sits on the shelf for an extended amount of time, it's going to flash you
0: off some too, you know? Well, and how it's ground up or uh, blended up, like there's the liquid uh, chromatomber. <laughs> some of these words are just too big, but the uh, there's two different main styles that are used and they do have standards and metrics. But what a lot of people will say is these private labs aren't extremely highly regulated. So if I was a lab owner, let's just say in theory, I have nowhere near the money for any of this equipment. So you don't have to worry. I'm not a lab owner and I'm not involved in any lab, but if I was, and all of you wanted to send your cannabis to me to get tested, is it going to make sense for me to say that it tested 15%, 20% or 25%? Regardless of what your flower tested at, most people are going to want their result to be 25% or higher. So if I just tell you all, Hey, you got 25% then you're more likely to go to me than the person who just honestly tested and said, Oh, you got 17 or you got 12 or tells you what it actually was. And then you get people that are coming back and say so like, Oh, this lab always tests high. So I'm with you, Tao. There is some reason to question the stuff, but even with that being said, if let's say all the labs were, um,
5: That's all you could go by anyway. So yeah, really let's just say that it's a little little strewy, you know?
0: even playing field though. Let's say that they're all great, which they're not. Cause you can send the same oil to five different labs, a homogenized oil. It says 80% CBD if you do it legitimately, but one lab will say 81, one will say 70, one will say 99, one will say 85, and one will actually say 80. But even if they were all exactly the same, there's something else to it. I mean, it's not just THC. So we're talking about what's the highest tested autoflower, and I said highest tested in what? THC is one part of the equation. If mercine really knocks you out and you're looking for mercine, if it doesn't have mercine in there, then people aren't really going to care. If it has 15, 20, or 25% THC. Um, for some people that matters more but for some people it doesn't matter at all they just want the THC so it's really interesting when uh, we talk about potency and then the test results because most people that I know who live in areas that have access to testing will tell you the highest testing stuff often is not the most potent in their experience I'm curious yeah, I still, everyone thinks about I still
2: testing. get razzed by that man when I talk to people they're like oh you know I just want I just want really high THC. I'm like, dude, you know, that, that has nothing to do with it, man. It's the cannabinoid profile. You know, Kevin Jodry has a video where he says he had some flour that looked like it got ran over by a Mack truck, thrown in some trash. And he's and he said he was going around in circles on this Island and didn't know how to get the hell out. You know? so I mean, Some
0: people though, they don't know who Kevin Jodry is. So that example doesn't mean shit to them. And they're like, well, I buy booze and yeah. vodka is 40% and that's stronger than beer, which is five to 10%. And that's, you know, less than it's, wine. It's the, can- it's the, like the cannabis, cannabis Jesus. <laughs> But people don't recognize that. So I think the better way to get through to them is like, okay, think about a joint or a bong. If you have a 15% THC bud versus a 30% THC bud, you can either take two hits of the 15% or one hit of the 30%. And then you get to the same area roughly. And so that might help some people get over that just buying based on the potency. And then you could also say like, well, no one's really drinking moonshine not many people are at least most people prefer like wine or beer or something that has a little bit of a flavor to it and if you explain it to them like that they might be more likely to getting that cannabis that um well, well that i just feel like people only
2: things. see like they see like trichomes but you know the more ice that the higher they get when that has nothing to do with it at all it's the cannabinoids inside of that flower is what's going to dictate uh you know their effect from it uh, well, i will the, say this kind
0: of THC does matter to some people, especially like the lesser initiated user, people who don't use as often. A high THC number, regardless of the terpenes, THC sticks around. So like say they let it sit in their bag and get hot in the room, the terpenes are always going to volatilize off for them. So what sticks around is THC or CBN. So for them to buy that 30% THC makes more sense than 20 or 15. Because if it's gonna sit around and volatize off all the terpenes, then they want the thing that's gonna stick around and give them that effect. THC is a medicine. It helps a lot of people uh, for a lot of different ailments. It also does provide side effects that people very much enjoy. The high associated with cannabis is often associated with THC, not THC alone, but it is a strong component. That's why we've bred towards it for so long. It's not like everyone was misguided. They didn't even have testing. <laughs> people were just picking the most potent plants and they happen to have a bunch of THC. With a little bit of cannabinoids as well. But like OG Kush, the true OG Kush, it's like 17, 18%, and it'll knock you on your ass. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, THC is just one cannabinoid out of, out of many, isn't that correct?
0: The, yeah, there's hundreds, literally hundreds. <clears throat> and and same with terpenes.
2: I'm, I'm talking about the vast amount of cannabinoids. People just think it's just if it's icy, like that's it. But there's just so much more involved in the canvas itself.
0: Yeah, there's icy CBD now at this point. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier, that Kush hemp. You would look at it and it is frosty. Like if you put your flash on that, it looks like a high THC, nug. it looks like a Bubba Kush. So people would look at it and probably get placebo high because they're like, holy shit, it's so frosty. And everybody that I know says that usually just assumes it's good, strong, potent stuff, smoke it up and they'll be happy and good to go. But, um, people that I think are not as mentally sold on it would have the experience of like, well, CBD doesn't get you the same type of high or same type of feeling. As I want THC. to, um,
3: I want to just interject here. This person in the chat, Shredder0911 says, um, I'm guessing distillers spend more on wood barrels than they do making the grain alcohol for the flavors. And I thought that was a really interesting comment to make. Do you guys agree it's kind of insightful in that way? It's true. They spend a lot of money on just flavor alone in that way. Yeah, Certainly
4: if you thought about the entire aging process too right, and yeah. sort of the opportunity cost of the aging process yeah there's a lot invested there
0: That's why I'd go to Frenchy Cannoli and give him a little bit of credit where he kind of compares <laughs> hashish to wine because it's one of the only products at least in cannabis right now that may actually increase in value after the harvest uh, cannabis itself dry flour. And most concentrates have a fairly limited shelf life. They're getting worse. They're losing their terpenes as they go. The taste is less. Uh, even the THC can, um, what some people would call, it degrade to CBN, which is a more sedative and maybe not the thing. Some people are actually looking for that, but let's just say that they're not. Um, it's looked at as lesser and you're, you're actually losing percentage over time. So older cannabis is not well, a How valuable old do you like your cannabis? cannabis? Even if it's, it's frozen
5: BG. and stuff? There's gotta be a way to store it where it doesn't lose. It yeah, I but mean,
4: you I wanna it. just step in on this and say, yeah. you know, my stuff that's been aged at least a year, so the stuff that I harvested over a year ago, it is like sort of more a special treat for me. I definitely think that there's a... it's different, but I, I, I think that I kind are of you, appreciate bro? the are quality say, of it. Are more. you
3: implying I've, are you implying that perhaps? People don't have to eat gourmet ingredients and gourmet foods to get like a reasonably good quality experience. Is that what you're saying? No,
5: that's not what anybody's saying, I don't think.
3: As, like, metaphorically,
5: though sorry
3: no I'm actually
4: saying I think it gets better through time to a point and then I think it starts to probably get worse unless you're really being careful with how you preserve it and I guess I should clarify
0: from the home grow perspective you can keep stuff and cure it and it may get better with age depending on strain depending on preference but if you look at stuff in like the legal market here yeah no exactly but again I'm not really thinking about the legal market I'm thinking about my jars And all that, so it it just um, from that perspective, the consumers who I was sort of thinking about from this end of um, you know like what is the best time to consume it? We all might have a different answer on that, even for the same plant harvested the same day. But
5: um, yeah, I have
1: a different answer myself. I'm not I'm not one that wants a year old weed. I I actually want it within the first six weeks. So uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm on the other side of the coin of that myself
0: you would like the herbs now
1: i often don't even start smoking
4: weed in in the first six weeks like i won't even open the jars during that period
2: yeah i like a little bit past six weeks myself within i just tried the herbs now i
0: don't know if you have heard of the my herbs now device but i used to wait at least two weeks for the stuff to be dried and then i'd have a jar cure for like usually about a month to two months is where i liked it but some stuff i find to be better at like six months or a year it was more rare that it would be better after the time for me personally yeah But the combination of using the Herbs Now device and then my Curador, which keeps the uh, bud at 60 degrees Fahrenheit and 60% humidity after it's dried, the Herbs Now kind of looks like, for those who don't know, it kind of looks like a food dehydrator, but it runs at a much lower temperature and it won't dehydrate food. And it dries your buds in like four days to five days versus two weeks. And um, what I found is this was, at least for me, the first time that I've had such the live plant smell still on the buds when they're in the jar it was like a lot more similar sometimes it changes as it cures but this was a lot more similar and that was something that i um, really enjoyed and it was the earliest i've had bud after a harvest and actually been able to smoke it without coughing a lot because normally there's so much moisture left in the bud that it just has to be cured out but
5: um, well, once it's dry i think it, well, my stuff that i personally grow it tastes awesome as soon as it's properly dried some of it gets better, but some of it changes, and uh, definitely certain strains have gotten way better. That grass smell I had on a couple of sativas that I grew out, and uh, I, yeah, because it wasn't tasting that good. It was in the jar for a long time, but then I went back, and when I opened it up, I was like, wow, it really did make it better. So it I'm believe totally believer certain strains are more benef- benefited by the time,
0: you know? I've noticed that with some sativas too they have that like hair grassy smell earlier in the cure but as the chlorophyll and other vocs gas off and you get the remaining like heavier i think they're sesquiterpenes that stick around it can actually open up and be a much more enjoyable bud but what i wanted to make as a more general point was frenchie brought up that hash um, unlike anything that we were just talking about with flour it creates a whole new chemical hashishine which is a combination of terpenes that is brought out through age, through heat and pressure. So when you do something like making a temple ball where you take like a, basically you're doing a water sift hash, which you're screening out uh, the resin and water and ice. And then when you dry that, um, you flake it up so it dries and you take a boiling basically water bottle and you roll it over the hash to make it come into one big glob and you roll that glob into a ball. And over six months to a year, the Cannabinoid content changes the terpene content changes, but it's not like a a steep drop. There's actually just like changes. So like it might be 60% total cannabinoids, but that composition changes. It gets a different flavor and um, Unless you have actually consumed that style of hashish I would say definitely recommend it to anybody who hasn't but it's something that I'm interested in and seeing the market moving forward where we will have more educated consumers and people that are actually looking for whether it's long cured flower and even to the point of um, saying the distillers use barrels to uh, change the flavor, I think that that may be used with like, not that it's lesser quality, but say you grow a type of cannabis that doesn't have a high cannabinoid or a terpene profile, doesn't have a, a signature smell to it, but it yields amazing and it is really resistant. And then you take that and you dry it in a barn with instead of barrels, you know, just some sort of wood that adds a smoky smell or flavor or something to it that people find enjoyable for whatever reason. Um, Some people would be interested in it. Most people like ourselves are going to be like, no, 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 I want to breed that in there naturally with the plant. But I do think that just like with wine or any other liquor, flavored intoxicants, which is all the stuff kind of comes down to tobacco, alcohol, (laughs) cannabis, they can be manipulated in flavor. And uh, at the end of the day, they're getting us some sort of intoxication.
1: Yeah, I'll say that uh, that's also strain dependent, and um, I'll say that uh, I still stand by what I say. I know a lot of growers, you know, I've been doing this a long time. I know grow, a lot of growers are on both sides of the fence, and obviously I have not not grown the, and ran the gear you guys are running. I know that if it's Tiva dominant, it, it will get a little bit more. I grow pretty much indica dominant strains, but I mean – you know i, I think it, it just depends on what you're doing what, what what the strain is different gear i mean i've had different gears that have done it that way but i think as a rule of thumb you you, you kind of want to consume cannabis kind of fresh I, I like it to almost like a banana you don't want it to last for a long time on a shelf and i know that's controversial i know a lot of guys are like talking about curing and burping and jars and you know that just isn't for me so
0: Noah, the science would stand behind basically what you're saying with uh at least the levels of terpenes, because as soon as you chop, most of them are starting to go at a pretty rapid pace. So I would say the closer to the harvest, the more terpenes are going to be around unless you have a very sophisticated and very cold and very dark drying room, um, which I think most people do their best. But if you just look at the lab data from a fresh chopped plant where they take it straight to a lab and test it for terpenes versus a plant that's been dried for two weeks and then cured for a month, Uh, versus two months versus three months four months five months etc the terpenes just do it's basically a steady decline like across the board with flour so um, there's other things in there that make it more enjoyable like you're getting less water content so the flour burns a little bit better uh, smoother on your throat certain terpenes are actually um, just sort of caustic they're aggressive in your throat they're not comfortable for people to inhale at too high of a level so maybe some of those terpenes falling off actually make the smoke a little smoother so it's not just just terpenes there's
4: other things too like the chlorophyll i mean there's other things
3: that are breaking down that improve the flavor of the experience i'm curious to find out um you know somebody at some point is probably going to do this for the same reason we've done it for wine and others and whiskey and other sorts of, of things but what exactly is happening and kind of taking a look at like the terpene breakdown and I guess combination it sounds like and what physical chemistry things are happening and and chemical chemistry things are happening.
4: Yeah there was I tried to get into the sort of publicly available research on this I mean the academic research or otherwise um, there's really not a lot that's been done and I started to wonder about sort of the market for it um, because For some other things, I suspect that the research has been done by large producers and it's just proprietary, but I'm not even sure that large producers are particularly interested in knowing sort of the best way to to cure and prepare cannabis. Um, Their interest would be more towards stability and speed and consistency and things like that. Um, but yeah, as far as I could tell, there's been really not a lot of research that really understands the, the chemistry of what's going on and that during that process that we call the dry and the cure.
0: There's a good, uh, maybe two hour long video on future cannabis project. I like to plug them. I think they put out good content They had a few different scientists come on and explain kind of what they best know about the drying and the curing process so far and I found it pretty interesting for anybody who would like to check that out. uh, You might gather some useful information from it. I feel like we've shared a good amount of uh, what was discussed over there, but um, it's nice to hear all the fancy scientific words and temperatures and uh, levels and things like that from uh, another source so you can maybe believe it a little bit better or uh, track down the initial source of the science so you can look at it for yourself and share it if, if people ask you like, oh, what do you know about this or that? you can at least have some sort of documentation and uh, ground to stand on until the new science comes out and they say that this is the way to have it done. Because for a yeah. long time, people said 60, 60, right? Uh, 60 degrees Fahrenheit, 60% RH. Well, the, my herbs now producer tried that side by side with his device, which runs at like 75 to 80 degrees, which kind of blew my mind because most terpenes start volatizing at 70 or 68 degrees, not most like the first few myrcene and some others go at 68 Fahrenheit, and then 75 is the next breakpoint where a lot of them start to uh, volatize through vapor pressure. And I'm curious if because the herbs now is a sealed device, like there's some air gaps on the outside, but it's like mostly sealed, the plastic, if maybe that changes the vapor pressure within the device versus like being in a hanging room, like an open room where there's more uh, airflow or area for the terpenes to volatize off. I'm curious, but in the side by side, I do think that uh, I enjoyed, I didn't get any lab testing done. It's just too expensive and they destroy that part of your harvest. And for me as a medical patient to throw away, I don't know, half an ounce or something like that, just to get some lab results isn't worth it for me. I'd like to do the good old bio assay, which is <laughs> test it yourself, smoke it and see which one tastes better and gives you the better effect. So um, I actually I, wanted to Yeah, say I've
4: it. always felt like I could, I could learn more just by smoking that half an ounce, <laughs> you know, like, and, and experiencing it. Chris, I've, seen uh, a video
2: by, uh, I've seen a video by Rare Dankness. I don't know if you guys uh, have heard of anyone doing this, but they, they pump nitrogen into their canisters to help preserve it.
0: Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Um, the reason to not do it is because as soon as you crack that, um, it preserves the bud really well up until the fact that it's opened, and then the bud goes brown, like, insanely quick, and um, if it's stored for longer than a certain period of time. Personally, there's other stuff, like uh, the Curador sells argon gas. I think it's, like, element number 18 on the periodic table it's a little bit heavier than oxygen and nitrogen. So when you spray it into your jar, it just displaces the oxygen by being heavier than it. And they've done tests that show it's it's safe uh, to use your cannabis uh, with this. And they've actually got tests for like a full year plus and they pull out the bud and it keeps its color and it doesn't uh, sort of get that spoilage that is associated with the nitrogen. That was a big thing out here in California. Everyone was doing like the tuna can with the nitrogen. How does
5: the CO2, how would CO2 work? You know, offhand, Jack? It was really yeah.
0: bad, yeah. CO2, I think, is, um, I mean, it's commonly used as a solvent to extract with. I know people use it for dry ice. Oh, yeah, that
5: would be good uh, no. <laughs> So I think
0: it would get it maybe cold and potentially more brittle. And the more brittle and cold cannabis is, the more likely you're going to shake some of those strikes off into that tuna can. Uh, I personally don't love it. Um, but a lot of people like them for one reason or another. It does block 100% of the light. They can be um, airtight sealed. But I think glass, um, glass is actually pretty affordable and it's very not bad on the environment. It breaks down to sand. So, I mean, it's like probably the best option other than maybe like hemp plastic or uh, any sort of biodegradable packaging. There's a company out here called like something Ocean where their pre-roll tubes are like 18 straws they pulled out of the ocean. So it's at least like upcycled plastic versus just general plastic, you know.
3: I just want to uh, point out, in, in case we've seen in the chat, Chris Chackle uh, asks, question for the panel, why are nutrients and elements absorbed by the plant at different pHs, uh, depending on medium, uh, hydro versus soil? Do we have any impressions about this?
0: I think Doc could take that.
4: Um, yeah, it has to do with how the nutrients are, are going through cation exchange or whether they're going through in a cation exchange um and so in a in a strictly hydroponic grow, or if you're growing in a media like cocoa, um, you need to provide the nutrients in the, the pH range where they're already available to the plant, where they're already soluble. Um in soil, there are exchanges that that take place oftentimes before those nutrients are sort of uh taken up by the plants. So that, you know, the ranges really aren't that different, and I think that uh, people get, it, it affects some of the the nutrients more than others, um, but the range for soil, you start a little bit higher in soil because some of those exchanges essentially have the effect of lowering the pH.
3: Thank you.
0: I think that was a pretty thorough answer. Does anybody else have anything that they might like to add to that? Uh, in, in the meantime, I guess I could talk about like rock wool, for example, as a very good cation exchange it's uh one of the mediums that plants are able to uptake nutrients very easily in. And, and um there's some like soil has. A yeah very, exactly and so in
4: time. in rockwell they're just the, the rockwell's not getting in the way essentially of the interaction between the plant and the water it, it, it it's the, very similar to cocoa cocoa has a, a much stronger cation exchange with calcium and magnesium and, and then an influence on potassium Um, but other than that, cocoa also largely sort of stays out of the way and doesn't interact with the other nutrients in the same way that, that a soil, um, that the cations do in soil.
0: I have some serious questions about some of these charts. And we've talked about this on the past. If you Google nutrient uptake charts, pH, granted, they're they're
4: all different.
0: Yeah. And And some of them are
4: are exactly the opposite for the same nutrients. Uh, The one that I, I always look at in the charts is calcium. Um, because sometimes you see charts that say that calcium is only available at super low pHs. Other times you see that it's only available at higher pHs. Um, And I'm just wondering, like, where the hell did people get this stuff? But there seems to be like three basic models that everybody is sort of like cheating off of and building their own sort of chart based on one of these other models. Um, And to be perfectly honest with you, I, I'm not sure any of them are, are totally grounded in science, at least the ones that are always reposted around on forums and stuff.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I don't think they are founded in science because I've looked for the science to back it up and I can yeah. find it. It's always just the image and then like dot groweed whatever. website. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. No, and-, and they're different. So if you find two of them, if you compare, especially calcium, I find that's the one that sort of wanders around the chart the most. Um, and calcium is one of the ones that's a a little bit sensitive to pH. Um, it's much more absorbable, um, up into the sixes than down into the fives. And that's something that we have to deal with. That's one of the bigger sort of pH potential issues in cocoa is if you run consistently too low, you can provoke uptake issues of calcium. Um, and it's best uh, to sort of always occasionally at least hit them with a higher pH.
0: So in the chat, it's interesting you say that because uh, Loyal show says biggest yield ever seen in cocoa was pH 7.5 with like a sweating emoji. It just confused me. And what I was going to say is I think some of this stuff, like we always say in basically every other topic ever, uh, it's cultivar to cultivar. Like some of this stuff does vary from one cultivar to another. And I do think pH may be just one of those things on that giant list of like, Certain cultivars like more light, certain cultivars like more or less food, uh, watering at different times and intervals. And uh, I think that the reason those charts to me seem a little problematic is because it assumes that every single cultivar is gonna take it up exactly the same way and that the- Well, yeah, it's also sort of
4: based on the solubility of that um, element at different um, pHs. So some of them, if the pH gets too far out of range, it can actually precipitate and fall out of solution. Um, so that's fairly independent of whatever strain you're growing. But, but I definitely agree. Different strains and different individual plants have different relationships with nutrients. And we definitely see this in, in growing in cocoa, especially with seedlings. Um, you can be growing six different seedlings, all of the same strain. You can even have six different clones um, and as they get used to growing in, in the cocoa, they all have different experiences with sort of their, their calcium. Some of them do fine. Others display really minor issues. Others really sort of struggle with that transition. So um, each individual plant can be a little bit different. And that really has to depend on the, the sort of health of the
5: roots and the, the overall health of the plant. I have a question about, has, has soil samples been taken from like land race areas where Yep. Like, let's say Congo has a, a pH of 5 and India has a pH of 7.5, or has anyone ever known?
0: They've done these studies, but uh not recently. They've been done throughout history where they look at biology in different soils, um, pHs and things like that, the fertility of different soils the in correlation to the THC and CBD produced. I don't know much more than that, and I actually can't reference the study. I do remember seeing it at some point, though. So I know yeah if not, if and, and else, that's, so do.
4: that's going to be different too. The, the pH sort of implications are really different depending on how you're fertilizing the plants. And in a living soil like you know the land race plants would be growing in or the wild plants would be growing in, um, the pretty much everything is different with nutrient uptake in that situation. So it would depend on the entire sort of biosphere that you're working with as well.
0: Smiley's Garden brings up that there's also something uh, known as EH, which has to do with like redox in the soil. I'm not 100% familiar with it, but I do uh, realize that it does have some sort of impact. I also wanted to shout out Run to Your Fate, who says, is it possible to pre-charge hydroton like you would active carbon in a soil garden? So I think they're talking about like biochar. You can just take carbon and inoculate it with good microbes and use that as like a activated uh, carbon source as a good uh, aeration the benefit of hydroton is
4: basically that it's inert so you're not going to be able to get it to to do much or store much or become inoculated with with anything it's it's we use it because it's inert
0: I think once it's in the soil, though, um, it does have a lot of crevices and like spots for like water and aeration. And I have heard that even in super soil mixes, I do know a few people that are using it in super soil mixes. They claim that it's able to form little homes in there. I don't have like uh, microscope data to prove it or not, but I would say at the very worst, it's aeration. And one of the biggest problems in super soils is they tend to get pretty heavy with organic matter. So anything you can do to break it up a little bit, give it a little bit better aeration, Uh, well draining soil is gonna be important for any soil growing because uh, as Dr. MJ has pointed out often in the past compared to cocoa, the oxygen uh, available in soil when it's at field capacity of water is not as high as something like a cocoa medium. So the oxygen in the roots is not as as good. So one of the ways you can counteract that is by making sure you have, whether it's perlite or grow stone or um, hydroton or rice holes, whatever you choose to use, pumice, um, there are a whole bunch of different things that will help you break up those big clumps of organic matter in the soil, so that airflow and water can both uh, get through the soil.
3: Spider-Man in the chat asks um, if we have a recommendation for the charts that we were um, laughing at earlier.
4: You know, I, I, I don't have a specific recommendations. I'm not entirely sure that those charts are going to be useful to growers, m- maybe ever. Um, I think that they, when you run into problems with pH, it's common to try to over-diagnose them. Um, and I think that coming at this, once you've sort of dialed in, you have a nutrient issue and pH is the likely culprit, then you just gotta get your inflow back into the appropriate range. Um, It's not, I'm not even sure it's helpful to know the the specific sort of um, micro or macronutrient that's causing the the issue like that. Um, And I don't think you need to, to see that chart in order to establish that pH is the likely culprit. There's a few things that can trigger nutrient deficiency symptoms in plants. And if you're using, I'm sort of thinking about, since we've been talking about the, like hydroponic style of fertigation, then the, the cause isn't a, a deficiency in, or a lack in the dosage. Um, and it, it can, some nutrient issues can be caused by cation exchange issues like calcium deficiency when you're growing in cocoa. Um, but oftentimes, if you're fertigating, as you should, um, and you run into sort of sudden onset nutrient deficiency issues, that's a sign that the pH was out of range and you need to get it back into range. Um, so, I don't know, I almost uh, sort of beg growers to, to like back off the, the sort of specific diagnosing of some of those issues because they all have a common cause. And what I see happen is that the attempt to try to like diagnose it to a simple to a specific thing, and then oftentimes growers think that the correct answer is to try to raise the dose of that thing that's deficient, um, when really you just need to concentrate on returning the inflow to an appropriate pH range.
0: I'll say from actually doing the diagnosis on over a hundred different growers' gardens over the past year that. 99 out of 100 times, it's not a nutrient uh, deficiency. It's almost always an excess of EC in the root zone. I'll always start off Mm -hmm. by asking, What medium are you in? What size pot do you use? What nutrients, if you are using any? And uh, they'll always say, Whatever, whatever, whatever. Then I say, What's your EC or PPM going in? And oftentimes they will be like, I don't know. So I'll be like, All right, next feed, tell me what it is. And also measure the runoff. And then tell me what that is. And almost always, like I said, 99 out of 100 times, their EC going in is maybe appropriate, but then the EC coming out is like double or triple, super sky high. So I'm like, all right, we're just going to go water only or like really low EC from here until we get out into this range. And Dr. MJ, shout out to you. Your uh, website has a little graph that has like EC ranges that are appropriate for different times of flower. And every single time that I've suggested that, it's... (laughs) Been way lower than what they're running, it's fairly safe to run within those ranges. I would say, so I recommend people getting back to those ranges, and then their plants always end up getting healthier. <laughs> so I'm not like exactly no, that's exactly the experience I have.
4: Yeah, EC getting getting too high causes a lot of issues that that people try to then diagnose as some particular deficiency, um, and and that's one of the big ones. Absolutely, Jack, and pH often does this too. I, I agree that pH is not even as common as the high EC issues. Um, So I do agree that it's important to try to figure out, is the problem being provoked by the nutrients that you're using? Is it being provoked by the the electrical conductivity in the root zone? Um, Or as a third option, I always ask, you know, is it possible that the pH was out of range on a recent fertigation um, that maybe your meter got out of calibration or maybe you didn't measure water or something. I mean, is that a possibility? Because that could help explain what's going on with the plant. But yeah, we look for sort of those most likely causes. Um, And my experience has been growers want to know, okay, this is iron deficiency or something. And it's like, okay, but you're not going to solve it by giving more iron. We have to solve it by figuring out what's provoking that.
0: And they often send me a picture of a single leaf that they pulled off of the plant. And they're like, help. And then they have a single leaf. Yeah, that's my favorite. (laughs) And then I'm like, can you send me a picture of the entire plant? And then oftentimes the whole plant is like green. So I'm like, hey, it's actually, you're better off than you thought you were. You know, so many pictures
4: of senescence of the lower leaves when, you know, in a perfectly healthy plant, if you Mm -hmm. didn't clean up the skirt totally well, and there's some lower leaves that really aren't getting any light at all, um, the plant will strip nutrients out of them. They look like it's a horrible nutrient deficiency. Growers freak out, but that, that's a, a totally normal sort of plant process. Um, so yeah, it's always helpful to know, did this leaf come off the bottom of the plant? It Was this leaf getting any light? Um, because if it wasn't getting any light and it's the only leaf that that's happening to, you don't have to worry.
0: Yeah, I've seen that as well. People uh, getting nervous when the bottom of the plant is just sort of sacrificing those leaves to... You know allow the top parts of the plant to continue to thrive and i just prune those when i see them now because it's sort of that as a grower you start to understand why you're seeing what you're seeing more often if you have a reasonable expectation to think the soil or the root zone is kept in the proper range why would i be seeing these sorts of issues oftentimes i think people don't they underestimate how quickly the plant can take up water because as it grows they assume that they're going to keep on giving it like the same amount of water. And um, that doesn't end up working out because the plant ends up consuming that water in a shorter period of time, making the root zone dry, making the EC rise. Whenever anybody asks me how
4: much to water, they always tell me the size of the pots that they're in. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what size pot you're in. What matters is what size plant you're watering. Um, And it's really important to remember that. I totally agree, Jack. We're watering the plants we're not really watering the the pots. Um, and the plant will, most of the water that we give is lost through the plant itself, unless you're in a huge container with a tiny plant.
0: The Can Can Grow, shout out to him, he's been kind of absent for a while. He really made that point apparent to me because the way that his setup was, I believe it was all sealed. And he had to run dehumidification because as the plants would transpire, he would literally physically be dehumidifying it off. And it was like, so his dehumidifiers caught something like 80 or 90% uh, basically of the volume that he watered into the root zone. So the plants basically took it up and transpired almost all of it out. That means that like only 10 to 20% was actually lost to the drain trays and evaporation um, just naturally. So I found that to be fascinating that people can actually see directly how much water is being pulled by that dehu and how much they're transpiring
4: absolutely I mean and when you go into your your garden when you got good plants growing in there and you have to do any work I mean I start sweating almost immediately like that humidity just gets to you when you're standing above the plants Uh, they can
5: they can definitely put it out I just wanted to say something about when we were talking ph I think what happens with me sometimes is with the super soil when I was super soil I mean I guess I am still but if you overwater, or like you're saying, Jack, if you end up underwatering, that probably affects the pH in that soil. I think overwatering definitely does because it's hard to just leave it. It yeah, I think it changes everything when you do certain mistakes, and it's very difficult to get back on track in certain situations.
2: Yeah, that, that's the issue I'm having, Noah. So I just kept. I, I thought if I just kept feeding, because I'm just I'm new to super soil, so you know I'm still kind of working through my uh, my issues, but. I wasn't giving it much water, water sessions, man. And I went to, and I was starting to have deficiencies. And I was like, and basically doing what Dr. MJ said, I'm like, Oh, it must be this must be that. But then I was like, well, hold on square one. Let's check the soil health. So I have a a blue lab pH pen for soil and I checked it and it was like astronomically high. And it's because I haven't been giving it much water. So I started giving it just water for a while and they're starting to calm down and absorb roots. And I actually saw plants that didn't have new burn now that they were actually accessing the nutrients, starting to get, uh, burnt tips on the leaves because they were finally it was becoming available to them because i was dropping down uh you know the ph and uh so yeah i I agree with you man completely
0: i want to uh change the topic a little bit back to auto flowers we were talking about this earlier and i was typing it into the chat to max and ruby him and i were talking a bit about uh he had a breeder come on he has a show called talking buds episode two he has Firebuds genetics come on they talk about autos and he messaged me and he said you know, I just had a question about he said that he prefers 24 hour light cycle and a lot of other people dude grows uh, many other well respected auto flower breeders people on this panel have even said in the past that they believe um, that everything needs a night cycle to sleep it benefits plants there's recovery time. I do think that there's a benefit to having a dark period, but that being said I have heard many auto flower growers that successfully grow giant plants under 24 hours and what I started to talk about him with uh, with Max. the dms was how the dli can kind of impact this a little bit so you can't just look at it and be like oh you have an hps or an led or whatever your dli is this it depends on how large your grow area is it depends on how close your light is to that plant and um, my thought was for 24 hours one way it could be beneficial was say you run the same dli so you have a par sensor and you can measure out exactly how much you're running for a 24-hour period to make it equal to an 18 or a 20-hour period, which most people run their autos under. My thought was if over a 24-hour period, um, like there's a world record for David Goggins. He did like the most pull-ups and he's been since beaten. But if you do pull-ups over a 24-hour period and you have to do like 7,000 of them, it's easier to do it over 24 hours than it would be over 20 hours than it would be over 18 hours because you have to do less per hour. And so I was thinking maybe for the plants that are more successful in the cases that they are, that maybe they take in less photons per hour, but they take in the same total number of photons per day, and then they're just photosynthesizing the entire time. So maybe I'm just like, gone yeah. too much of a conclusion, but uh, I'll throw that over to Doc, because I know you uh, have grown yeah. a lot harder yourself.
4: Yeah, um, I mean, you're sort of getting at an appropriate, I think most of the time DLA is used, um, to think about light, it's sort of used in the wrong way. but. You're coming at it, I think, the right way in that what increases when you go from, like, 18.6 to 24.0 is the DLI. Um, now, whether it would be better to run a longer light cycle at a lower PPFD, because once you're really thinking about the, the amount of light, you're really thinking about the density of light that hits the plants, Um, and that's all fairly instantaneous, um, at the carbon dioxide levels that most of us grow at, it's best to be at about seven to 800. The plant can hum along at that rate up to about a thousand. I mean, going over 800, you're still getting gains, but they're really diminishing. Um, and the plant's just sort of humming along at that rate. And the amount of time you can give it that rate determines the, the total quantum yield, um, during the 24 hour period. Um, so it's an interesting thought, Jack, whether, you know, it, it depends on what PPFD you would have been starting with. Um, so if you're talking about running a plant at, at like 1000 PPFD for 18 hours versus um, 800 PPFD for 24 hours, then I, it would be more efficient to run it at that 800 um, because you're increasing the number of of hours and you're not losing much off of the yield um, by going from 1,000 to 800. But it would be even better to just keep it at 1,000 for the 24 hours. Um, so I don't think that thinking about it in terms of total quantum yield is is... The difference. It's whether or not you're giving the plant um, sort of the circadian rhythm, whether or not you're giving that plant um, uh, any kind of signal that there's a rhythm. And there may be some things that are secondary to photosynthesis in some strains um, that, that sort of do better if they have that rhythm. But well, isn't the, the research a- is pretty incon- incon- inconclusive. And I agree, people can grow pretty good plants under 24-0. Absolutely.
5: Well, yeah, the one guy I follow on IG uh, at SavageDWC, DWC. He does DWC. He gives. He swears by the twenty-four hours of light, and he has monster plants. But then again, he's giving it the DWC. But there's places in up up north that have twenty-four hours of light some parts of the year. So perhaps that's even part of yeah. The no, and code, they can certainly know? manage yeah. it. So yeah. the only people. I mean, I
4: run twenty-four, and that's because um, the breeder Dutch Passion. Claims that they did a pretty large study with um, plants at 18.6, 24, and 24.0, and that their strains, their autoflowering strains, did the best at 20 and 4, so 20 hours on, 4 hours off, um, which seems like a good balance to me, Uh, you know. What you're giving up in those four hours in in quantum yield, I'm not really convinced. But that's one of the the benefits of running autos in the first place is you have a you're able to provide a larger um, sort of DLI um, during the flowering period, which allows more photosynthesis, more flower production potentially to take place.
0: Smiley's Garden asks: Do plants always? Uh have 100% photosynthesis during lights on. And I would probably say no if they hit their max DLI, if there's limiting factors, like if you don't have enough CO2, if the temperature is too hot, if there's not enough nutrients in the root zone. One of the things I was going to say about the 24 hours light on that could be beneficial for people in like very cold weather situations is that keeps your climate extremely consistent. Um, If it is cold during the day and cold during the night and you're running a light to keep it at a warm time, you're not going to have a super cold drop off. And like uh, the American one mentioned, there are places where the sun is out for 24 hours and many of these autoflower genetics have at least some genetic lineage that came from areas like that. So I do believe that they at least have the capacity to photosynthesize for a full 24 hour cycle, maybe for their entire lifespan. I do think that there may be some interesting things to play with that running at 24. Yeah. and then dropping down to 20 slash four. I do personally think that uh, there is a benefit to a night cycle if your climate allows for it. Where it's not gonna get extreme at your nighttime, um, giving it a little bit of time to like rest, so to speak, or just have a cooler temperature so that maybe more diverse terpenes can develop than would be if uh, the temperature is always just kept at a certain heat while the light's on. So the plant does some thing
4: translocation problem. things and, and, and processes things differently when it has to go into a dark cycle and back out of a dark cycle. Um, So I I agree. There are some potential benefits there. Now, I did want to just say, I think you may have used DLI the way that I don't think is the right way to think about it, which is thinking that there's sort of a max DLI that you could achieve in less than 24 hours. Um, There isn't. there's, There's no sort of maximum amount of light that the cannabis plant can consume over a time period.
0: There's a maximum
4: amount that the cannabis plant can consume at any moment, and that's 1,000 micromoles per second or per meter squared per second, Um, again, depending on carbon dioxide. And then if you satisfy the carbon dioxide needs, you can raise the the density of light up higher. You may eventually run into some other limiting factors with nutrients. Um, Temperature can start to play a role, other things. But as long as you're meeting the plant's needs in terms of carbon dioxide, nutrients, um, providing the right climate, um, they they don't sort of reach like, a, OK, I'm full stage, like a human sitting down for a meal gets full. Um, a plant, it, it's a, a continual process. As it's receiving the light, it's processing that light. And it doesn't sort of reach a point where it's out of room or out of whatever unless it's out of carbon dioxide or it's out of nutrients or it's out of one of these other limiting
0: factors i think it would be that it's the limiting factor because like at a certain point co2 only becomes so efficient so there is a limiting factor like bruce bugby talked about i think corn field grown crop has like a 60 dli most cannabis growers i think are giving cannabis between 30 and 40 some are actually pushing up towards that 60 but often they're supplementing
4: yeah well it, it is different um, but it's still time dependent. And, and if you increase the amount of time that the plant is under the light, then you increase the amount of light that it can take. So the limit is all per second, essentially. It's not per 24 hours. There's nothing per 24 hours that affects the amount of light
3: the plant can take. Can Can't process. we calculate
0: the. What's that? Oops, sorry. I think I unplugged my mic. Can you hear me now?
3: Yes, but you're um you have that uh, lower voice issue now.
0: I'll, I'll unplug it all the way and be right back. One sec.
3: Yeah. DBH.
0: That
3: <laughs> lower
4: voice syndrome. Ecstasy. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I think DLI. You see a lot of references to it around. You even see some grow light companies talking about it. Um, but. From sort of the the grow light engineers that I talk to, um, DLI is not sort of a valid metric that um, really describes the the way cannabis plants will use light in an indoor grow situation. Um, So Doc, I just had a question. Can you hear me now? Limits. Yeah, Jack, go ahead.
0: Um, With the DLI, you were talking about how it's a per second thing. So if they do calculate the maximum it can want per second or is ideal per second at a certain co2 or temperature or nutrient range right we can count the number of seconds per day and then you can right. but then it's seconds. all about
4: how many seconds the lights are on so that, that's point, right? the point right if you go from 12 auto. 12 to 18 6 you're increasing the dli i totally yeah, agree yeah, yeah. with that but, but I'm thinking what a lot technology. of growers think is I give it really intense light. And so my plants reach their DLI after 12 hours and it would take you 16 hours to reach the D that is all nonsense. That, so my point is just, I think there might be a it, maximum
0: limit. I think there is a, a limit at the, at the end bar. Like if you could somehow get a new light that could provide 10,000 PPFD to the entire plant the entire time, but manage to keep the temperature just right, I don't think the plant would want that much light. It doesn't.
4: No, about 1,500 PPFD is the maximum, even when you start supplementing everything else. Absolutely. You run into biological limits of photosynthesis. But those biological limits on the per second basis are what determine the amount of light plants can use. There's nothing based on the 24 hour cycle, which is what DLI really measures is the amount of light a plant receives during a 24 hour cycle. There's no separate 24 hour limit to how much light plants can process. If they're exposed to 1000 PPFD for 24 hours, they'll use it for 24 hours at essentially the same efficiency as they would use it for one hour if they only got it for one hour. So if you go from one hour to 24 hours, you're increasing the DLI, but you can never meet a plant's DLI in less than 24 hours in cannabis because it's time dependent. It, 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 it is
3: the metric by how much time
4: it. they're exposed to the light.
3: Yeah, it's just not a, the metric doesn't make sense for that context, it sounds like.
4: Yeah. Yeah, there would have to be some separate limit that said like plants can only process you know, so many micromoles of of photons over the course of a 24 hour period because of something that happens during that 24 hour period. Um, but there it it just doesn't work like that. The the processes are are fairly instantaneous. The plant absorbs carbon dioxide and immediately uses it in photosynthesis as it's absorbing the light. Um, as long as it has access to both of them, it will engage in that.
0: So, so- We could see that um essentially we answered smiley's question i think very well that essentially if all the other factors are kept ideal you could give that 100 the plant can do 100 percent photosynthesis the entire day so so let's say it's 1500 is the ideal number at 800 ppm of co2 which i believe is the chandra et al study has found and if you calculate dli you could then say um the maximum efficient DLI for a day for like an autoflower cannabis plant. If you run 1500 PPFD at 100 right. CO2, that there's a number, like you can actually calculate DLI. The I, I totally agree.
4: You can calculate that number. And if that's a 24 hour day, that would be one number. If you're only running the lights for 18 hours, it would be a smaller number. Yes. Um, and there's no way you're going to reach that number, Jack, in less than 24 hours. It's not like you can that. just give... 2000 ppfd for 18 hours and then have the same effect see right, that's the whole the point that's to get why it doesn't work that's and why a lot, a lot of 13. growers use light movers which is just something that, that sort of flies in the face of, of understanding how the physics of this works as well with the idea being that you could give them like in more dense light but in shorter bursts is sort of the light moved across the canopy that also is is not really sort of the way physics works. And there's some fairly large commercial operations that have invested in those styles of, of grow operations.
0: Like I run 1113 because I think it brings out more phenotypic expression. I don't do it because I think it increases my yield. For example, if I ran an extra hour of light, it would get that hundred percent photosynthesis for the extra hour. And I would get an extra, you know, hour worth of yield out of my plant to basically agree with what you were saying with the whole DLI thing. It's not like I could run them harder at 11 hours and then, right. Get the exactly. So you're hours. never
4: going to get, and, and that's what we've talked about before, where, where I, I think um, Spartan was saying like the leaves drop at the end when they've satisfied the DLI, that kind of understanding about it, I think is, is sort of the, the wrong way to think about it in this sense, um, where we, we think, think we can get is? to that limit in a shorter period of time.
0: So what do we think the effect is that causes the leaves to droop at the end of a cycle is it that actually stress?
4: is related to the circadian rhythm of the plants um i can't remember that i'll ask dr photon again we were talking about this a few weeks ago
0: um is it like a phytochrome one to phytochrome uh, two switching thing
4: yeah there's a, a particular signal going on inside the plant there the plant knows when the dark period is coming and the plant knows how long the dark period is going um, really to be for really interesting studies have shown that plants store sort of exactly as much um, resources as they need to get through the dark period that they anticipate. And at the end of the dark period that they anticipate, they're down to less than 5% of their stored energy. Yeah. Uh, they, they can talk- do math literally. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's always something I keep in mind when I'm extending the darkness and um, is the, this is freaking my little plants out. They're entering like the starvation zone. They're like, where's the
0: light? Todd, ah. so, did you have um, something else to add on there? Sorry to cut you off. No, there. I
5: had kind of a question because I've noticed it too. When I when I was doing 24 hours of light for veg, the plants will droop at a, like after a certain amount of time. And now they're drooping, are they still doing photosynthesis? Is it still functioning and making sugars or, or are they in timeout anyway? And at that point, the light is not really doing much anyway.
0: I think we'd like to assume that it's not photosynthesizing because it looks like it's so stressed out and, and not uh, functioning like it properly would. We all like to think that praying hand leaf is like the optimal, I think, but um, I, I don't have any data to say that it's not photosynthesizing while it has drooped, but doc, I'd be curious. If yeah. You
5: I was asking, yeah, I was kind of asking doc if you knew or anybody. Yeah. What am I saying?
4: Sorry. Sorry. My mic was on mute. What was the
5: question?
0: you were saying if,
3: No, your mic is unplugged. And I lied.
5: No, I think you froze. Listen, Doc, so, you know, like, I've noticed 24 hours of veg, the plants end up do drooping their weeds uh, He runs point. 24 hours,
0: he would notice his plants would droop at a certain point, so <laughs> at, at that point.
4: Oh, wow, Jack's got the, like, rapid catch-up voice going on now.
0: Sorry, guys. My no, it's not your unstable. Fault. It's
4: the buffering or whatever.
0: Yeah, connection. Sorry about that. Tao was uh, just asking about the whole, uh, did, did you hear his question about the drooping while well, the light's on 24 hours? And if... Uh, that happens do you think the plant is still photosynthesizing
4: yeah, yeah. so there could be drooping it can also be a photo protection response um, and if you oftentimes some plants are exposed to too high of a density of light and the density that they can tolerate is Dependent on like the carbon dioxide that's present, um potentially the amount of water or the amount of nutrients um other things like that, so if they're getting more light than they can use, that can also cause droop um, but if the plant is doing it on a consistent twenty four hour cycle that's part of its sort of natural cycle and the fact that plants have that that cycle is one of the reasons that uh, photon and I have to talk about like when you go to 24 zero, you do sort of um, lose a lot of those rhythms that the plant has during the 24 hours.
0: It definitely is an interesting choice because I know I hate timers and uh, my timers have screwed me over more than many other grow equipment things ever have. So sometimes in veg, I'm just like, ah, it'll work under 24 as long as I have like the light dimmed enough and it's close enough that the plant doesn't stretch but it's also bright enough that the plant can grow at a decent rate um, and i don't tend to notice the huge amounts of detrimental effects and the nice thing is that you can always just oh hey i'm home now i can pop it open and go and work in there and in veg i always sort of feel that way because there's not like high likelihood of hermaphrodism from a light leak and dark period during veg in my opinion but yeah
4: i don't think there's much of any
0: yeah i think the hormone issues uh haven't started happening yet so, for those out there that are worried about checking on their plants at the dark period in veg, uh, I wouldn't worry about that at all. I think that, yeah, I
4: actually often do a lot of my training during that dark period during veg because if I go into the tent during the lights on period, I, I usually turn the light off and that costs the plant light during the lights on period. Um, but yeah, I, I often say I don't really respect the darkness during veg. Um, but I, I do usually give, that, give them some. And if I do the training, it'll always be like, right when the lights go out, I'll go in there for half an hour or whatever it takes me. And then, you know, zip up the tent.
5: I was going to ask you guys, um, I saw an IG post where uh, the guy's power went out and it was four hours. I guess the light was on. And it, after four hours, the kid's like freaked out. He brought his plants outside and they were having a discussion on where they're going to get bugs. He's going to bring them back in if i would only if, if the power went off power ever went out for a long period of time i would give i wouldn't mind it for being off a full 24 hours in flower and then just starting up at the proper time but what would you guys yep. think is like a sick a scale of time if it goes two or three days like i wouldn't want it to go more than 24 hours there's other
4: issues right there's going to be climate stuff you're going to have to deal with i mean it's not just oh, the lights yeah. that go out um oftentimes you have like huge relative humidity issues in in that kind of a situation well, one thing for sure though if the power goes out when the lights are supposed to be on that that's much better than if the lights come on when they're supposed to be off um screwing with the dark cycle is really where you get yourself into trouble with hermaphrodism much faster than screwing with the lights on cycle yeah um Yeah. And so I don't think you have to panic if the power goes out for a few hours when the lights are supposed to be on. Um, And you can miss an entire lights on cycle if you needed to. Yeah. But after that, I'm starting to worry about some other things.
0: Yeah, I gave the Uh, little uh, finger swirl because I was thinking about circulation, air circulation in specific. A lot of people, um, if they can't afford one outright, you can rent from like Home Depot or Lowe's or any big box store uh, generator um, that can at least power your exhaust fans and your circulation fans and maybe even uh, certain lights. If you like have a mother plant that you need to keep in veg yeah, with a a small shop light, it doesn't need to be the full on grow light, just some amount of light to keep it in that right cycle. But for the most part, I think um, one day of dark period, for across the entire even if your veg gets completely dark i don't even think that's gonna like send it all to flower like it'll go straight back to veg if you can get it back on a normal light cycle unless it's like a multiple year old plant some of those really old cuts as soon as they get a little bit of darkness they want to start flowering so yeah like 20 years no, this is a 20. timely
4: topic we have a, a storm about to hit the gulf coast so i think that uh, a lot of people
5: may lose their power here and need to know what to do and Smiley made a good point that like when the power's out, so the AC's off, but your lights are off and the plants will eventually like not transpire so much. After no, a, they know. still transpire, man. They're, they're going to... Oh, okay. For a while. <laughs> yeah. If, they, yeah. If, they, if, they expect- if
0: there's water in the root yeah. zone, if there's water in the plant, it wants to oh, kick yeah. it out. You know, yeah, out the
4: plants just keep pumping it out. That's why plants keep pumping it out during the dark period too. And we need to run the exhaust fans at, at night. Um, you know, just for anybody that's listening, if you are going to lose power, the the biggest risk is being in DWC. If you're in DWC and you lose power, you got to drain your tanks like pretty much immediately to prevent from suffocating your roots. Um, other media, I, I think we have probably 24 hours before we have to full on sort of start panicking about it. So if you are confident that the power is going to be restored within 24 hours, then I think you're going to be able to sort of get through without having to rush out and rent a generator and other things like that. And man, if you're in an area that's about to get hit by a hurricane, I think that the generators are all probably spoken for by this point. So, um, but yeah, I think it's the DWC growers that have it the worst in those situations because they absolutely depend on electricity to power their air pumps to keep the roots from suffocating.
0: I've heard stories of people blowing into air, like, you know, the actual airline to try and keep the aerostone going and it's like that's yeah the last cause. i that think the best way to really manage great.
4: that is just drain the tanks as much as possible leave a little bit of water at the bottom of them but leave most of the roots exposed to the air and it, like pray that the power comes back as soon as possible
0: so we have a question in the chat uh from mama los 710 v she says, do you guys think two Mars Hydro TSW-2000s are too much light for a 2 by 4 by 6 Opinions, how many plants would y'all recommend for that size tent? I was thinking of doing uh, SOG, Sea of Green, with eight plants in one-gallon containers. So 2 by 4 yeah. that's eight square feet.
4: That's and- a lot of light. I don't even know that they'll physically... So that's a 2 by 4 tent? Um, it, two TS one, one thousands are perfect for that space. The TSW, I'm not even sure is going to physically fit. I, I think its dimensions are pretty close, if not a little bit more than two feet.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I think um definitely do do your research on those specific models because I don't have the specifications in front of me. And I'm, I'm pretty familiar with yet.
4: the TS line of any line. If you're still buying lights, I would recommend either the 1TSL 2000 or 2TS two 1000s. Um the TSW it, you you certainly don't need two of them in an 8 square foot space one TSW can cover almost nine square feet, but it will cover it more in a square shape. So I I don't think it's the right light for you. I mean, that's why Mars makes the TSL, um, because it's designed for the rectangular coverage and the TSW is designed for the square coverage. So in a square tent like that, I think the TSL 2000 is like perfect light for it. Um, The TSW, you definitely don't
0: need to. So we have a question again from Smiley's Garden. Shout out to Smiley. He's a member of the Michigan Bros Grow Show as well as a fucking talking shit with Eagle co-host sometimes. Uh, he's got a great question again over here. He's aiming at Dr. MJ. He says, can you ask Dr. MJ about photorespiration? So we were talking about transpiration earlier.
3: What is that? I'm not sure what that means. Is, is there a
0: difference between respiration and transpiration? Learn, learning in public here, people, I do not know. I thought those were the same thing. I could be wrong. Um,
4: yeah, no, sorry. I my, my keep muting my mic and then talking to you guys and you don't hear me. Um, respiration is um, sort of bringing in oxygen and using it for other kinds of uh, metabolism purposes. Um, so it's the other sort of side of that. Um, it's part of the, the photosynthetic cycle. Um, and so plants also use that oxygen. But when you're talking about respiration, you're talking about the, the use of oxygen for those plant metabolism processes
3: so like cellular respiration or something different
0: so like i just googled respiration versus transpiration and a a quick simple definition it says respiration is the process by which plants convert carbon dioxide to oxygen as part of photosynthesis transpiration is the process of water movement inside of the plant's system this means more water drawn from roots and leaves up through the uh, cells of the plant just for now they don't need us Uh, jack
5: don't be telling them google tricks Come on now! <laughs> yeah,
0: don't you know? Don't you? Did
3: you click an ad? Are you sure? Is somebody trying to sell you a product? Better check. <laughs> no, I. that that makes sense.
4: Yes, that actually does make total sense, Jack. I,
0: I think sometimes it's nice just to have like the dictionary definition type thing, you know. So because I think yeah. exactly what Doc was saying was 100 percent accurate. I just wanted yeah, to uh, clarify it for words. myself and other simpletons in the audience who may have yeah. difficulties understanding the big words.
3: Words yeah and cover sometimes cover a word, word like respiration can mean like different yeah things.
0: it's the
4: specific photorespiration is that the process we're still dealing with the oxygen but it is the process of of separating that off as part of the the photosynthesis
3: and, and then the carbon becomes the structure of this of the plants among other things and then the oxygen goes on to do other stuff Right. And then plants
4: also respire in other ways and reabsorb oxygen and use it for metabolism.
3: Now, that's probably novel for a lot of the people in chat to hear about. Yeah, that's actually one of the reasons that the roots need
4: oxygen, right? We always sort of talk about how the roots need both water and oxygen. The roots need that access to oxygen because they need to be able to absorb oxygen and use it to, to power cellular metabolism pulling, what is it, pulling ATP down the, the that staircase thing. I can't remember.
3: <laughs> From uh, the helix? What's that? It, it's part <laughs> the of the helix. <laughs> uh,
4: um,
0: oh god, you guys are getting into real science.
4: process where the oxygen acts as like the magnet that pulls the, uh, the ATP and sort of generates energy through the, the uh, yeah, I'm, I need to go back to my biology textbook for that.
3: Speaking of which, this sort of conversation just reminds me of, um, and this is a little bit off topic, but for those who are curious, like with insects, like, you know, there's non-vascular plants and there's vascular plants and the benefits of vascularization are many. And one of them is having like phloem and xylem channels, phloems that sap, you've got the sugars in it, high sugar content. That's why one of the reasons why it's always been odd to me that people think that insects can't digest sugar because that's literally what they evolved to eat in plants. And the phloem channels are a really great way to do that. Um, And so sugars are going down uh, into the roots, into the exudate. And then if Brandon were here, he'd talk to us about how the microbiome um, is uh, affected by that and how the rhizosphere is a sort of microbially active place because of the exudate.
0: I got a sugars. different direction to take it though for you, because um, I've been talking with some people in the chat, and uh, they were some of these organic people are rolling back some of the claims that I've heard about. If you get a bricks level so high, you're immune to all pests, and they're saying maybe soft-bodied pests are not able to attack or eat a plant of a bricks level. Aphids are
3: soft-bodied.
0: Okay, and then uh, their other, their claim was that the whole, it was going back to the little pancreas thing and the. Insects that would be able to produce the um, was it protease or something else um, that was able to make them break down the sugar? Um, so uh,
3: insects, so insects, there's tons of different kinds of insects, um, even among the herbivorous ones. but so uh, sucrase, amylase, glucosidase, um, invertase, these are all uh, these are all types of enzymes that break down different kinds of sugars and uh various ones can, are have various effects some insects have some and not others um some can break down uh, proteins and lipids and they have to of course because these are very fundamental things for them to get but like in the case for aphids they eat so they drink phloem sap or for phloem channels the sap full of sugars and some amino acids, but not a whole lot else. So that's why they have to eat so much of it um, at a time. So they're literally adapted to uh, like overfeeding essentially on the phloem sap in order to get everything. And they super concentrate the sugars when they uh, break down the, the carbohydrates, they, they, they concentrate them into honeydew and they excrete them out. Um, so it's kind of like and they do that because that keeps the osmotic balance in check in their bodies. They don't have something called a paratrophic matrix, which is essentially the, um, basically, it's this uh, it's this sort of chitinous tendril uh, mesh screen that a lot of insects have um, that sort of only allows for certain things to go through. And it contains the bolus, the food particles that they make, or uh, they, they kind of group them in this matrix and then this matrix kind of concentrates the enzymes, generally speaking, and then over time from the foregut to the midgut, then the midgut to the hindgut, they excrete things out, and they conserve water. Uh, A lot of insects conserve water to do that quite a bit, Um, but in the case of aphids, they they consume so much water and so much sugar, they have to find a way to balance that osmotic pressure. Otherwise, um, they would have a huge problem, and they would die, but uh, that's not the case, and aphids Just for context, um, insects have been eating plants, uh, like they have a 200 million head start on any mammal that's ever done it. So I don't know. I just feel like that's kind of an interesting take when you consider that perspective.
0: I was on the side of um, where you're coming from that insects have evolved and and, and I know you are. I'm just to add a little bit more clarity to the subject. Certain people in the community, and I've probably been guilty of this myself because I've been very fortunate to not have been maybe in an area or taken in clones that were infected or infested with pests or some sort of molds or, um, to my knowledge, any pathogens um, or viroids and things like that. But when it happens to somebody else, I think it's easy for somebody like me who hasn't had an issue in, in a long time to... Try and look down at that grower and be like, oh, they did something wrong. If only their bricks were higher, they wouldn't have gotten uh, that pest. Or if, if only their calcium level was proper, if they did soil sampling or leaf tissue sampling or something like that, if, if they were a perfect grower, they would have never had the issue. But what I've learned from studying Xenthanol YouTube videos and other just entomology documents is. Almost no plant out there is immune to everything and anything. They all have something that can take it down. That's the cycle of life, right? It's like, it wouldn't, it would be, irremovable from the planet if it didn't have something out there that could break it down. So, and
3: on, a, and just to just to interrupt here, the other really sort of contentious thing that I'm not a big fan of that people say that's just like what you're saying it's kind of this unfortunate um, sort of pejorative, like, oh, as long as you know, it's too bad you couldn't make your sugars higher and I just feel like that's fundamentally misunderstanding the ecology of plant and insect interact or herbivore interactions anyways. Um, but it's the idea that like and I've heard uh, Thomas Dijkstra, Dijkstra perhaps I don't actually know, um, he's a big fan of he's actually an entomologist but he was fired from the University of Florida which is also by the way a really great university for uh, integrated pest management research so if you want to get some cool references definitely check out their resources. But he likes to say um, that insects uh, only eat muck or only hang around plants that are weakened and that like their function in ecology is to eat weakened plants. Um, And that this is also a justification for why pesticides or insecticides aren't necessary. Because as long as you're growing healthy plants, why would you need them? Which I think is like, gaslighting in the extreme and kind of disgusting. And I, I don't like to say things so negatively, but I just feel like that really uh, is concerning to hear because tons of insects, like the examples I heard him give on a John Kempf podcast was uh, cockroaches and fruit flies and house flies, I think. And like, those are definitely detrivores. Um, but there's tons of insects that aren't and I just felt like that was kind of intellectually dishonest for examples Uh, tree hoppers plant hoppers tons of insects uh, they might sometimes target weakened plants that's certainly true but it doesn't mean that they only exclusively eat weakened plants and how do you even quantify weakness versus strength or health in that matter I just feel like that's sort of hard to quantify
0: That's what him and I kind of went back and forth in the DMs a little bit about where he says so many times they don't discuss like the rate of photosynthesis. So maybe if you could just study the rate of photosynthesis or or bricks or some other uh, soil samples or tissue analysis and if we could get to a metric where we could say this plant is healthy. But even then, I'm sort of on the belief of evolution has happened for billions of years where insects and other pests, whether it's powdery mildew or other, if a plant builds up a resistance uh, life seems to find a way whether it's good life that we want or pestiferous life. And like we're experiencing right now, there's, there's a new things that come out, uh, whether it's virus or viroids, uh, those things can completely take down a population that was once seen as being fairly strong and, and immune or resistant to many other populations of things. So it's a very interesting discussion. And I'm glad that we could rope you in a little bit more, Matthew, because, uh, it, this week, we didn't have too much IPM stuff, but we definitely circled back around to it towards the end. And it's yeah, like I,
3: digestion video. Xenthanol. Two weeks. Hopefully.
0: <laughs> I like that you're putting it out there. I'm a big I fan love of the s- hopefully saying it in public. because <laughs> You then, can uh, really
3: empathize with that, can't you?
4: <laughs> indeed. Indeed. I it's gave so up. I, I just thought I can't tell anybody when videos are coming out
3: anymore because I'm always wrong.
0: Go with Activision slash Blizzard's approach and just say... Soon,
3: yes, they do, they are a fan of that, but it's typically pretty high quality when they're not telling their people, uh, not to criticize certain governments and then not letting them play in their tournaments. Hong Kong was an interesting time,
0: that was very interesting, yeah. Their stocks are doing some interesting things now, too, because of that. But that is definitely not cannabis related. And we're coming to the six o'clock hour here out in California, it's 5.51. I know we've only got about six of us. Um, this is usually where I'll ask if anybody has any final thoughts before we do our shout outs and wrap up.
3: Yes, Osbucket420 um, and Spider have been talking about aphids and their guard recruitment of ants. And I just wanted to say, in all this talk about healthiness and plants and the ecological interactions and the assumption that herbivores are going to be necessarily always bad, at the end of this show, I want to say this. Believe it or not, when aphids produce honeydew, all that sugar, uh, it attracts guard ants. Those guard ants, uh, those ants that tend aphids for honeydew and other hemiptera, well, they actually can chase away other pests as well. And so what ends up happening is that sometimes, even though they're siphoning all this sugar, they actually are making um, a great use for the plant by having the ants come and shake away a bunch of other pests that might be even more detrimental. So sometimes ecology works in weird ways like that. Just wanted to say it.
0: That's why it's never really black and white. It's always context dependent. And, uh, there are so many times, um, exceptions to the rules that might work in many contexts where there's a certain case, like the one that you just brought up, where even though there's sugar being taken away, you're gaining some sort of, uh, defense from that little troop defending your plant. So always interesting. And, uh, thank you, Matthew for joining us. I want to give you the, uh, opportunity first to do your sign out and, uh, then we'll go on to the rest of the panel.
3: Sure. I appreciate it. This was, uh, I really, uh, I always love uh, the panel, being on the panel and hearing all the really interesting chat questions. I feel like our chat is becoming more and more active lately. So if you're interested in pest IP, or so or sort of IPM video information, you can check out my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, the same one that was commenting in the chat. And you can also find me on Instagram at Sync Angel and also on Twitter, also at Sync Angel.
0: Thank you again for joining us. And I do hope that people check out your content because I know you uh, spend a good amount of time producing it and you use high quality resources. That's one thing that I don't see um, as frequently in the YouTube space as people um, coming with documented papers and, and things behind it and sort of giving you those resources that they're using to make the information available. So thank you very much, Matthew, for that. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And I know many of the audience members do as well. And so who's next? <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh, I see. We're going to get in. Hey, I just want to say it. something real
1: quick. I
0: want to take a second to uh, shout out Smiley's garden and give him a little bit of love. Cause I know it's Go ahead. My connection's I, unstable. Go ahead. And, uh... I just
1: want to say, uh, don't let anybody tell you what works in your room. Don't let anybody tell you what your preference should be. If you want to cure for a year, cure for a year. If you want to have your buds fresh, have them fresh. If you think that this fertilizer should be cut in half, cut it in half. If you think you need to add more, cut it more. Do bro signs, do side-by-side, side, do what works for you in your environment, your room, your strains. Nobody else knows your grow room like you do. And do your best you can, and uh, happy
3: growing.
0: Amen okay, I appreciate that,
3: that sentiment. Yeah, Cheers. amen. Yeah, like Cheers,
0: that. Noah. Here, here, for sure. That's a great sentiment. I want to give you the chance to give your sign-off now with that uh, awesome, awesome statement there.
1: Yeah, I'm Noah the Grow from Instagram. I've been doing this for a while. I've had a lot of people tell me things that should work in my room that didn't. And I've had things that people tell me in my room make my room freaking way better. So I love taking advice from people. There's a lot of smart people on this panel. I've learned from everybody here. And I uh, always have a blast. If anybody wants to check out my content, I'm on Instagram at Noah the, Noah the Grow. And uh, thanks for having me. And I'll see you guys next week.
0: Thank you for coming, Noah. I always appreciate your input. And I've also I'll second that I've learned something from everybody who's on the panel tonight and everybody who's been on the panel in the past, even the people in the chat often um, don't realize it, but they teach us by asking questions that make us look at things in a different way. And uh, I always love the insightful people that show up. I want to remind them all if they enjoyed the show to leave a thumbs up a like on this page. And I wanted to pass it next to Kyle Breeder.
2: Hey everybody, Jack, thanks for hosting. You do an amazing job, man. We wouldn't be here without you holding the torch. Thanks for the panel for being here. All the uh, insightful knowledge from everybody. And, uh, yeah, if anybody's looking for feminized seeds that are listening, check out peabreeding.com. If anybody has any uh, questions about breeding or anything in the cannabis uh, related vicinity, feel free to message me. Uh, I'm pretty active on there. I don't mind talking to people and, uh, yeah, you can find me at Predicated Breeding on all social media platforms, and I hope everybody has a uh, you know a great rest rest of the week, and I'll see you guys next Sunday.
0: Thanks for joining us, Kyle. And I cut out earlier, I was just saying I wanted to shout out this garden and give him some love because we were razzing him a little bit about the some of his claims, but him and John and other people have had some great results with healthy plants, um, seemingly being more resistant than the other ones in the area and just growing really well and having good results. So I don't want to discredit them or, or knock them down for what they're doing. I, I do want to encourage everybody in the community um, to spread that love, that growers love, whether we agree or disagree. I think we should all move forward together and I'm happy that he and others can show up that have differences of opinion or agree with us and we can still uh, continue to talk and, and share the information because I don't think anybody knows it all quite yet. I mean, the science is still out for so much of this stuff. That's why it's fun to speculate about and, and talk about and just uh, have a great time like we do here every week. With that said, I want to pass it next to uh, the American one.
5: Jack, thanks for hosting again and shout out to Shane uh, the panel thanks again it's great always talking it up um, and to, sh- to chat they're always great I want to reiterate what Noah grower said and uh, if you're having problems or you think something's wrong like investigate it <clears throat> look for all different ways that people remedy it or whatever and then uh, you know start choosing what you think is right and then just do your own and figure it out and uh, you'll go for And don't be lazy because, yeah, that's not good. And, uh, with that, I'll say that's it.
0: Like, Again, yeah, there's uh, no other girl showing off a little bit of his garden. And uh, you can go to my page at Jack Greenstock and see one of his uh, quotes where he's like, when it's time to clone, you clone. When it's time to transplant, you transplant. And I just uh, was so motivated by it. I had Shane go and clip that specifically out so that I could repost no it to my page. But uh it says like are the best growers hard workers. If you're looking for it on my page, but with that, I wanted to give uh, Dr. MJ. I believe you're the last one who hasn't had a chance to give your sign out.
4: Hey, hey, everyone! You're saving the best for last, there, right, Jack?
0: Of course, uh, okay. besides myself, but we won't we won't count me, right? Oh <laughs>
4: well, yeah, exactly. Not besides yourself. Yeah, I just noticed you put yourself after. Now I'm teasing. Um, I, you know, wonderful chat with everybody today. I enjoyed all the conversations as usual. Um, thanks for showing up to all of the CFC members in the chat. Love seeing you guys over here. I um, wanted to give you a shout out. Everybody in the chat, the panelists, all you guys, you know, and I want to invite everybody again. It's not too late to join us in the plant training grow challenge. Um, you know, we got the party cup challenge. You can just grow one plant in a party cup and you can be a part of this thing. You can grow all your plants You do whatever you want um we have uh, monthly drawings in the plant training grow challenge the first one's going off on september 1st i'm giving away a two by two grow tent with a ts 1000 from mars and then on october 1st we have a photon tech x 465 watt pro and 800 dollars grow light in the giveaway so sign up for that you're going to hear me talking about it for the next like three months and you don't want to have fomo for that um and you know check out my youtube channel give everybody some grower love and uh thanks for coming every week
0: thank you for coming every week i think people really appreciate your feedback and uh, the really rigorous scientific nature that you and many of the other panel members provide and i'm happy that you're going to be able to give away lights to the community because that's pretty awesome i mean putting stuff into growers hands that can help them grow their own and do
4: no, it's totally, I've been Santa Claus lately, man. I sent out two TSL or two thousands. I sent out a little SP 1000, I sent out a Spider Farmer light. I uh, hand delivered the Photon X 600 Watt Pro to OC Grower. Um, yeah, I've been hooking up a lot of people with lights lately. So if you want to get in on that, come and join the PTGC.
0: Hey, that's what it's all about, man. Spreading that grower love, getting more people into it and having the people that are into it already uh, have more access to good technology and equipment so that they can continue to grow their own safely at home. Uh, This is the Cheap Home Grow podcast. So getting equipment for free. Can't do much better than free, right? Especially with good stuff. And uh, I might have to jump in that plant training training grow challenge because it starts on October 1st, which is my birthday. And I've got three berries lights from Kineos Genetics, which I'm doing an LST on. I haven't even topped them yet. And I'm thinking, hmm maybe I'll just keep it straight LST because I've got them bent so far over and bottom nodes are shooting up. And I'm like, damn, I got all three of them first time I've used the easy swap pot. So they're in a square pot and in the veg space, I'm growing them all kind of one direction and they're getting, uh, man i love the plant training so i think join they, it? yeah we got a whole group
4: in. of non-toppers man there's a bunch of people doing lst in the non-topper group and yeah i mean yeah so the flip date is october 1st we're trying to like get everybody coordinated with that but if if conditions demand that you need to flip earlier or hold it off later we're really flexible with that we're just trying to get people growing together so come on and join us jack absolutely
0: For sure. I'll have to check it out. I know usually my limiting factor is time and just uploading the photos. And sometimes I can uh, be sneaky like my Instagram post where I use it as an Instagram time machine where I take old photos and upload them uh, accurately throughout the time. But I'll try and do it more uh, legitimately and post it while they're live because that's a lot more fun and uh, engaging for the community. But with that said, we've come over the six o'clock hour. That's usually our two-hour time slot. I'm at Jack Greenstock, as you can see behind me on my uh, logo that was done very early on in this whole podcasting thing. But It's what people know me as by now, so I'm going to keep it. I like it. (laughs) It works out for me. You can also find me at Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And I'm on Cannabis as well for anybody who's interested in that. Got my own podcast, Greenstock Talks, but I'm much more frequently found right here. With that being said, we will see you next week. Everybody in the chat, so much love. Thank you all for coming and have a great week.
4: Grow your own. Grow your love, everyone. Happy Happy growing. growing.